If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the word of God against the challenges of men. So let us hear the word of the Lord. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So word of the Lord, Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. Today's sermon, after many days. Early in the year of our Lord, A.D. 2020, COVID suddenly appeared in our land a great deal of fear was quickly ginned up. Yeah. Schools were shut down. We were told there would be two weeks to flatten the curve, remember? But it didn't stop with the schools. The government declared a state of emergency, shutting down much of the economy and most of the social interaction in society, including services in places of worship, included churches, included us. As a result, most churches took to meeting virtually on Zoom or some other such platform. And the two weeks to flatten the curve turned into two long years of shutdowns and restrictions during which churches could not meet together physically. Could those meetings still qualify as church? I addressed that nearly two years ago, a sermon called Online Church. I gave my view that yes, online church is still church, but suboptimally. I pointed out that according to Acts chapter two, verse 42, the four hallmarks of the church assembled are the apostles teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. We looked at whether those could be done via Zoom. We concluded that the first could certainly be done. Fellowship, you could do elements of it after a fashion. You could exhort one another to good works, for example. But certainly that was suboptimal. The breaking of bread, you could, again, do theoretically, but not together. Each would have to do it in his own home while we're seeing each other on Zoom. The fourth one, prayer, yes, you could do that. So Zoom church was church, but as I said, suboptimal. It's not what the church can be and should be. We are meant to assemble together in person where we can do all four of the hallmarks. There's something important and inimitable about meeting in person. This is why we see in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's something important. There's something that cannot be done when you're not meeting in person. If we look, for example, at Paul's first missionary journey, 
You remember he went on that missionary journey between the years 48 and 49, along with Barnabas and with Mark. And Mark abandoned them pretty soon in. But he continued on with Barnabas, and they went to a variety of places, Salamis, Paphos, Italia, Perga, and established churches. And the next year, after this, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. They didn't have Zoom in those days. They didn't have telephones. They had dead letters, and the, the postal system was actually quite efficient. But they didn't want to just write letters. They wanted to go and visit them in person. And Paul does so, even to the extent of being forced to break with Barnabas over this, because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along. Paul said, no, he bailed on us last time. We can't trust him. And Paul ends up going with Silas instead. Now, he wants to see them in person. And this desire, this desire for personal interaction, for being together, suffuses the epistles. He says, for example, in Romans 9, 1 to 13, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you. I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now. He wants to come. Why does he want to come? That I, might that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That I may be encouraged together with you by our mutual faith, both of you and me. That I might have some fruit among you also. See, he wants to come and benefit them. He wants, he wants to get, give them something good. He wants to do something for them. But at the same time, it will be a blessing to him too. I may be encouraged together with you. And this is why he wants to see them in person. Towards the end of the letter, Paul revisits the same topic. Listen to this. I also have been much hindered from coming to you, having a great desire these many years to come to you. I shall come to you. I hope to see you on my journey. So eager to see them. And now, again, he emphasizes what he can do for them, but also what they can do for him to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. So the mutual and differing benefits from in-person contact among Christians, and he enjoys their company. That I may enjoy your company for a while. He enjoys their company, as we should do. Now think about it. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, has penned this magnificent letter to them, and he still wants to see them in person. This kind of distance contact is just not enough for him. And we see this elsewhere, and we see it not just from Paul. Uh, the Apostle John, for example, writing Second John, finishes it this way. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The letter just doesn't cover it. Again, in this next letter, 3 John, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. We see this thing again and again and again. To Thessalonica, for example, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, 
We, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. We wanted to come to you. See it again in later in the same letter. You always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. See, the feelings are mutual. Paul wants to see them. They want to see Paul. And then Paul continues. He is praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. May God direct our way to you. And again, you see the desire here is to do something for the Thessalonians, to impart some benefit for them. And yet again, with Timothy, Paul's protege, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you. So why? Why this fervent desire to gather with other Christians, fellow believers? We saw already, John's given reason, our joy may be full. It should be a happy thing to meet with fellow Christians. But there's also this. Remember, we read this before. In order to stir up love and good works, exhorting one another. Remember that Paul wanted to impart some blessing to the people, to do things for them and they for him. And this is the sort of thing, stirring up love and good works, encouraging one another to do good things, maybe guiding them how to do it, giving them advice on that, exhorting each other, reminding them to serve the Lord, reminding them to live the way the Bible says. You can do it on Zoom after a fashion, but it's not the same as when you can do it in person where you can see the people, you can see what's going on with them, you can see what the needs are directly or you're looking at an actual human being instead of it's usually just a black box. So this is the purpose we have in gathering together, a chief purpose. This is something that the Bible repeatedly emphasizes as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, the different needs in the congregation, people at different points in their spiritual lives. And you can pick up on that, we hope, when you're in person. You can do that. There are some people who need to be warned, who are not living the way they should be. The others who are faint-hearted, perhaps because of troubles they face, you can comfort them. Those who are weak in the faith, you can uphold them. Now we see this as well in Galatians 1, 6 to 2. Brethren. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Bear one another's burdens. Yeah, difficult to do that remotely. You need to be in person for that. And again in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worshiping together. On Zoom, what do we do? We saw videos of music playing and hoping you were singing along to that. But now in person, we can bring back song leaders, people to lead us and we can sing together, worship together. It's the sort of things believers can do together. And there's the flip side. There's also the matter of church discipline. Unpleasant to think about it, but sometimes it does come up. A brother sins against another needs to be dealt with. And according to Jesus' advice here, Jesus' instructions here, it's the job of the church to do that. If they cannot reconcile on their own, they can't settle their differences with the help of two or three others, then it's the church that has to deal with it. 
it's a necessary thing, something that too few churches actually do. And it applies even to the leaders. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. You be careful when you're confronting a leader, but of course that presupposes you've picked your leaders properly and according to biblical standards. But even there, you're careful, but those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Leaders are not immune to church discipline. Again, this is something very hard to do when you are not together in person. So these are the things we can do, things we were doing, and we couldn't do these things anymore. Two years of not meeting together, two years of a form of captivity. And what does that make me think of? It makes me think of the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in the Old Testament. You recall in the year 586 BC, because of the sin of the Israelites, the Babylonians were allowed to conquer them and deport them into Babylon to complete the prophesied 70 years of captivity there. That's what was in view in our reading this morning. The prophet Hosea telling them, you know what? You're going to abide many days without king or prince. You're going to be captives in a foreign land. You're not going to have your own leaders. You're going to be under the thumb of the Babylonians. And while you're there, you're not going to be able to practice your faith properly. You'll have no sacrifice because there's no temple. You'll have no ephod. That was that device that the high priests used to determine the will of God. So they could not, for them, 70 years in captivity, they could not practice their religion properly. On the flip side, they also would not have trappings of the pagan religions that they had started following in rebellion against God. The sacred pillars, the teraphim, which are little household idols. And the question God was asking implicitly to see, which are you going to miss? When you don't have the worship of the true God, you don't have those pagan iniquities you were doing, which one are you really going to miss? Which one are you going to come to appreciate when you're away? And they found out when they returned. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. You can imagine the great joy when they were finally released from captivity and allowed to reassemble the true practice of their faith. Just imagine that, like those who dream, their mouth filled with laughter, their tongue with singing. After all this time, with both true religion and false, they knew which one they wanted. Or did they? Did they? When you read of their return in the book of Ezra, you see how many went back. It was a very, very, very small percent of the total population. Most of them were quite happy to stay in Babylon. With the pagans. Maybe some of them would keep trying to worship the true God in Babylon. Maybe some of them adopted the Babylonian religion. It's a very small percentage that actually went back. A very small percentage that, that were like those who dream, whose mouths were filled with laughter, the tongues with singing, and is a way of purging the people. People who did not care to be faithful to God could stay there, and only the true believers would return. And these ones knew which one they wanted. 
Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. They came back for true worship. And so what was this after that lengthy captivity? It was a new start. The return offered them a new start, a chance to start over, a reboot to their relationship with God, a do-over, a mulligan, so to speak. It was a new opportunity to be faithful, to stay faithful, and to get it right this time. And they did get off to a great start. They quickly laid a foundation for a new temple. The old one had been destroyed by the Babylonians. But within two years, and finished the temple, they faced local opposition. The government ordered a shutdown. No construction, no temple. And the people just, hey, it's not that important. It just isn't. Let's get on with life. It became comfortable with this situation, building houses for themselves while the temple lay in ruins. And they stayed comfortable until God has to send the prophet Haggai to light a fire under them. The prophet says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Haggai asks on God's behalf, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? And he tells them there is a consequence to this. Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. And be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. These people came back like those who dream. Mouths filled with laughter, tongues with singing. Very quickly, they settled down to caring only about the things of this life. And not the things of God. You think things are going to go well when you're dissing God. Think again, says Haggai. You think you can leave God out. God goes secondary. God goes on the shelf. And things will turn out better for you that way because you have more time for your own things. Nope. Absolutely not. And so with the ministry of Haggai, they finally get busy on the temple again. And they finish it. A mere 20 years after their return from captivity. Finish the temple. And then later, God sends more exiles back under Ezra, the priest who deals with some backsliding among the people. And then Nehemiah, who oversees finally the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And you can see how these things happen, how the timeline of these all the way from the captivities return all the way until finally. The temple and the city are rebuilt. But the sad thing is, as you read through these books, you see Ezra and then Nehemiah fighting a rear guard action, trying to keep the people from backsliding, trying to keep them on the right path. And it just isn't working. 
No, they don't worship pagan gods anymore. They claim to worship the true God of the Bible, but they don't obey him. They don't care much about him. And as you read through the book, you can feel Nehemiah's palpable frustration that despite his best efforts, the backsliding continues. You can almost see himself feeling like that, that boy in the story of the boy with the dike where he sees this dike comes down to hold back water. This is in Holland where they have to keep building these to keep their, their land dry. And there's a hole in it. And he plugs the hole with his finger. And another hole breaks out. He plugs that with another finger. And then another one, another one. He plugs as many as he can. And then he runs out of fingers. His efforts to hold back the, the destruction just, they're not enough. And you can see Nehemiah's frustration because that's what's happening. After that, that lengthy captivity where they should have learned the lesson, and they seem to learn the lesson, it's not long before they're back to their old ways. And Nehemiah kind of towards the latter part of the book, he's saying, Lord, remember for my good, the things I did for these people, things I tried to do for these people. Because he's recognizing that despite his best efforts, it's not happening. They just don't care enough. They were so infused when the captivity ended. Only to return finally at long last to spiritual laziness and backsliding. Very, very sad, actually, when you think about it. Very sad. You have the 400 years of silence and the Messiah comes and most of them reject him. The Messiah that they've been waiting for for centuries is there and they kill him instead. He doesn't stay there. And there are many who come to him, but the majority don't. As Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, where he's standing before the Sanhedrin because he's been preaching Jesus and they've brought up false charges against him. He's facing the death penalty. He's making his defense. He goes through the whole history of Israel. He points out that every time God does something new, every time God tries to bring them back, they just resist. They just resist. And yet they seem so enthused when it first ended. And I'm wondering now, what's going to happen here? Our version of the Babylonian captivity seems to be over now. The restrictions are ending. We can meet again together. You can actually, we'll be able to see faces again as of tomorrow. And how are we going to react? Are we going to be happy? Are we going to be like those who dream? Our mouth is going to be filled with laughter. You can actually see laughing mouths again. Are your tongues going to be filled with singing where you can actually hear what people are singing because it's not being muffled by and right? The question is, as a church, what are we going to do with that? We got this nice, fresh start, as the Israelites did when they came back from captivity. But the same question is to us as it was to them. What are you going to do with this new start? Are you going to be serious now about that faith? Are you going to be gathering together for the apostles' doctrine, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread and prayers? Are you going to get serious about knowing the Bible and living for Christ? Are you going to be serious about holiness, about living the way God tells us in the Bible that we should live? Are you going to get serious about storing up treasure in heaven, about doing things for God, things that will be yours for all eternity after judgment day? Are you going to make use of the learning opportunities that this church affords? You can grow in the faith, knowledge of God. Or is it going to be the backsliding that we saw with the Israelites? 
kind of, hey, we're happy to be back. And then we're just going to go back to the normal ways, the ways we fall before. Let's forget about Bible study. That's too much work for me to read the Bible regular on my own. Forget about going to Sunday school and learning there because, hey, I got school. I've got career. I've got online gaming. Those are the things that should use up my time. We need to think about it, folks. It is a chance to get a good, clean, fresh new start. But Old Testament Israel, they had that chance too, and they blew it. And they ran out of chances. We just might be running out of chances too. I don't know, but we might. So we have this chance. Let us not squander it. Let us take full advantage of it and become the church that God wants us to be. Up to you guys, what you're going to do. Think carefully. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.